So, Aaron Connolly, we began 2014 with uh, Jokowi, uh, an incredibly popular figure in Indonesia, but not an official candidate for the presidency. We end the year with Jokowi as president uh, and with fairly robust uh, uh, public standing. Uh, but tell us what happened in between. It was a, it was a pretty, uh, I guess, combustible and uh, fractious year. But yet the irony is, at the beginning of the year, we thought that this, this was going to be a very predictable year in Indonesian politics. Jokowi was probably going to become a candidate for president, and if he became a candidate for president, he was the, the prohibitive favorite. But in reality, it was a roller coaster ride. Uh, Jokowi was named a candidate in mid-March, uh, and then did not, his leadership of the Democratic Party of Struggle, his party, did not produce legislative results the following month that people had expected. You know, nevertheless, we still all assumed that he was a prohibitive favorite. Polls showed him in April uh, with a 40-point lead over any plausible opponents. And yet, over the next two months, that lead evaporated. Partly that was due to an incredibly well-funded and well-organized campaign by Prabowo Subiantu, who had been preparing to run for president for five years. But in part, it was also due to a very poorly organized campaign on the part of Jokowi, uh, hamstrung by his own party, which pulled funding at various points uh, and, and was not very effective in campaigning out in the countryside. But of course, at the, at the end, on July 9th, when Indonesians went to vote for president, uh, Jokowi was able to pull it out by a few percentage points. As well as the presidential poll, we also, of course, had uh, a parliamentary uh, elections. What did the results there say about um, the relationship that Jokowi has now and is going to have with uh, the Indonesian legislature? Well, when Jokowi was first named as a candidate, one of the main motivations for naming him as a candidate on the part of the party leadership, uh, even though they weren't terribly enthusiastic about him uh, personally, was the, think, the assumption that Jokowi would lead PDIP to ex an extraordinarily high number of seats in the legislature. The polls were showing when he was named a candidate that he might even garner, that PDIP, his party, might even garner uh, 33 percent of the seats in the legislature. They came up far short of that. They came in at about 19 percent. That was compounded by Jokowi's uh, reluctance and, in fact, refusal to form a coalition based on the transactional politics that have traditionally defined Indonesian coalitions. So in particular, Jokowi refused to give cabinet seats to other parties uh, in exchange for their parliamentary support. So this leaves us at the end of the year with Jokowi having a minority uh, coalition in the parliament. You know, Indonesia is not actually a parliamentary democracy. It has more of a divided government like American governments. So that means that, you know, while there's still a lot that Jokowi can do on executive action, he does need legislative support to accomplish some of his goals. And having a minority in parliament, uh, that'll affect his ability to accomplish some of those goals. So I think there was a lot of optimism, particularly outside Indonesia, about the way uh, the election year happened and, and about the fact that Jokowi, uh, as the first real outsider, uh, won the presidency. Uh, it suggested that Indonesian democracy was maturing. What's your assessment about what this year said about the state of Indonesian democracy? Well, you know, Indonesians now have their first president who comes from outside the traditional party or military elite. That's an ex that's uh, really an extraordinary development for Indonesians. Uh, to hammer the point home, Jokowi continues to fly in economy class when he takes personal trips, for instance, to go to his son's graduation in Singapore last month. Uh, it's an important development because it opens Indonesian politics up to people uh, who 
did not believe that Indonesian politics were open to them previously. This is not a country uh, where young Indonesian children have been told by their parents that anyone could grow up to become president, and now that now it is. So that's a tremendous development for Indonesia. But uh, Jokowi also faces a number of challenges uh, because he's not from the elite. So within his own party, he doesn't have the level of support that you would normally expect someone who has uh, led his party to a presidential victory to have. And there are those within his party who are not particularly pleased about the fact that he's become president and, and who have sought to undermine him as a result. So there are challenges and opportunities that come with Jokowi's, uh, with you know, the, um, the advancement that Jokowi rep represents in Indonesian politics. And then there's also the question on, on this issue of democracy. There's also the question of um, uh, of the 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 indirect election of uh, regional officials. Right, and you know, uh, again, at the beginning of the year, we were all talking about how this would be a banner year for Indonesian democracy. Uh, the first transition between one democratically elected president in Indonesia and another, uh, and yet in October we saw. Uh, you know, a really alarming development. Uh, the losing coalition in the presidential election, which again holds a majority in the parliament, uh, was able to uh, cobble together uh, support for a bill that ended direct elections of regional leaders. They're still going to be elected by the regional councils. Uh, but that opens up this process to much uh, greater corruption uh, and also is a slap in the face at Jokowi, who came up through the process of directly electing regional leaders. Uh, and is representative of populations in Indonesia that said they had had enough with traditional politics and wanted to elect somebody who is a real change maker from outside the traditional political system. So the test in 2015 will be whether or not the legislature approves uh, the previous president, SBY's last minute decree to reinstate direct elections of, of regional leaders. They have to do that by the end of March or else those elections will go away. So that's a real big test for Indonesian democracy. Just going back to the earlier answer, Aaron, where you talked about uh, Jokowi's relationship with his own party, where do you stand on this question of who's really in charge or, or how much uh, Jokowi is actually in charge versus uh, the, the head of his party, Megawati? Well, we see uh, certain spheres of influence uh, when it comes to Jokowi. There are a number of cabinet officials who were very clearly Jokowi's captain's picks. These were people who were not well known before uh, and where Jokowi said, I want this official with the Food and Agricultural Organization in Rome to come and run my Maritime Affairs Coordinating Ministry. Uh, that's something that Jokowi cares a great deal about, has invested a lot of political capital in, and he wanted his man in the job. On the other hand, you had a number of positions where Jokowi showed less interest, and it seems that the PDIP leadership had greater influence over those positions. And the best example here, of course, is the new defense minister, Ramizad Riyakudu, uh, who is very close to Megawati and who is not really in line with Jokowi's uh, uh, generally reformist tendencies. Uh, and, and so, you know, I would say that Jokowi is in charge, particularly on issues he cares most about. Uh, but the PDIP leadership, and really when we say that we mean Megawati Sukarnaputri, the former president, uh, clearly has a great deal of influence uh, over areas where he does not care very much about. I should add, Megawati was never very interested in policy when she was president for someone who was president of the republic, uh, but she was very interested in putting uh, people as, who are part of her patronage network in key positions. And I think Ramizad is an example of that. I would not interpret this as a policy decision by the new Indonesian administration. This is much more a patronage and personnel decision. 
And just finally, on Indonesian foreign policy, I know you wrote uh, a paper earlier this year about uh, Jokowi's likely direction on foreign policy. Um, we saw, I think we see uh, perhaps what we might call an emergent uh, maritime uh, doctrine. Is that too uh, formal a word for it uh, in uh, Jokowi's presidency? Can you say a little about that? Well, well, Jokowi's own uh, staffers have called this uh, Jokowi's doctrine, the Jokowi doctrine. I think it's better to think about uh, his focus on maritime affairs as a theme for his government uh, for the next five years. And it, it cuts across a lot of different areas, uh, everything from fisheries to transportation uh, to foreign policy uh, to anti-narcotics. And so it, it's a governing theme for Jokowi. Uh, there have been a number of commentators, Raja Mohan and, and Roy Metcalf here at the Institute, who have said they think that this is a foreign policy uh, presidency as a result. Uh, Indonesia's archipelago, and so this is really about Indonesian uh, domestic policy, but it will have foreign policy externalities and consequences. So a really interesting question in, in the year to come is, how does Jokowi's foreign policy team uh, handle those foreign policy externalities? We just saw last week uh, that Indonesia sunk three Vietnamese fishing boats that were fishing illegally in Indonesian waters. That'll have effects on the uh, South China Sea debate and on Indonesia's relationship with its neighbors. So, so the question is, how do they handle those? Uh, you know, how does the Indonesian foreign policy bureaucracy uh, handle the, the first time that they've had an activist president, uh, even though it may be activist on, primarily on domestic affairs, how do they handle the externalities of that new activist president? Aaron, thanks for your time. Thanks.